Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Ziani Bat, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Paul Major, Co-Manager of BB Healthcare Trust. Funds which invest in healthcare stocks are generally associated with growth. But BB Healthcare Trust paid a dividend of 4p per share in respect of its last financial year and offers an attractive yield of 3.5%. Paul, how do you manage to pay out such a level of income when investing in a growth area? The simple answer is the dividend is, is, is paid out of capital. So when we were um, constructing this, this fund, it, it very much comes back to, to, to understanding the, the, the broader theme behind it, which is if you, if you look at healthcare as, as an industry and as a service to the broader population, it's fundamentally challenged by demographic and, and economic factors. Put simply, we have an ageing population with chronic medical needs. The system was never designed to cope with such a population. And at the same time, we're really bouncing against the amount that, that voters, that, that governments, that um, insurance companies are prepared to pay to fund healthcare. So at a certain point, the system is, is, is going to collapse if it isn't fixed. So, so we need to reimagine how we deliver healthcare to the population and make it fit for purpose in the 21st century. Now, you'll be familiar with all the headlines about the NHS and all these sorts of things. The, the, the great news, I think, for society and for investors is the tools to deliver healthcare in a much more efficient way are already with us. We're not relying on some kind of Star Trek-like innovation to come in the future. And a lot of these things are simplistic and in many ways administrative in, in, in how they will impact healthcare because roughly two-thirds of costs go on the interaction between the patient and the doctor. So coming back to your question, we wanted to launch a fund that would enable investors to invest directly into these companies that were delivering these innovations that were going to really change the way healthcare uh, works. Now, most of those companies are growth companies, as you say. Many of them are outside of traditional uh, healthcare benchmarks because they, many of them are young companies as well. They, they, they don't pay a dividend. And also a large number of them in the US where dividends are uh, historically less popular. We do recognise that for, for retail investors, healthcare has long been associated with, with, with dividends. You know, you look at a Glaxo. Income they, they, yeah. they pay sizable dividends. So what we said was we are very confident in the long-term growth uh, prospects for these companies. So we will simply give a portion of the anticipated total return that we can generate in the form of a manufactured dividend. So as you consider the dividend all comes out of capital, yeah, we've averaged roughly a 20% annualised return since inception. We're giving you 3.5% of NAV effectively as a dividend. So that's what started at 3.5p when we launched at a pound. Um, and we will do that every single year. So, so it's only a small proportion of the anticipated total return, but it gives people access to a dividend and a growing dividend. And it also means they've got a genuine alternative rather than investing in these companies that are very much legacies of the last 20 years of innovation in healthcare, which was, was mainly focused around drugs. Okay, that sounds good, but isn't there a risk that if you pay dividends from capital in falling markets, your net asset value will take longer to recover because you are further shrinking an already shrinking asset base? That is entirely reasonable. I think, that, again, if we if we come back to the, to, to, to the more fundamental question, we have a growing global population. We have an ageing population. We have healthcare cost inflation that has been mid-single digits for as long as anyone can remember and looks to be uh, mid-single digits moving forward. And we're looking to bring that down into the low single digit range to make it uh, sustainably affordable for the future. But if you ally those things together, the outlook on the demand side is relentlessly upward. So I would say 
for for healthcare as an industry, we, we, we are uniquely placed to feel comfortable running such a strategy. It's also worth bearing in mind, healthcare is what they call a classic defensive growth sector. You know, put simply, people get sick, whether the economy is growing or shrinking. You, you know, people don't stop being ill when there's a recession. Indeed, recessions actually uh, heighten the affordability crisis and in some ways drive drive the market further toward the changes that we anticipate. So again, in that sense, we're, we're somewhat away from the economic cycle. So, you know, lots of investors at the moment have concerns about whether or not the economic cycle is peaking. That has very little relevance to, to our expectations for growth of our companies. So have you succeeded so far in meeting your dividend target of 3.5% of your net asset value each year? And um, do you expect to be able to meet your target in respect of a trust current financial year, which is 4.85p per share? Yes. So, so we're in control of, of, of the dividend. It's it's struck by the board at the beginning of, of, of the of each financial year, and we, we, we make an announcement. As I say, that's based on the, the end net asset value of, of the prior year. Now we have very good visibility on on you know where those dividend payment dates are going to come, so we can make sure we have sufficient capital available at the appropriate time. So, so we are very relaxed. I'd also say, uh, if you look at the history of BB Biotech, which is Bellevue's other investment trust, it's paid dividends out of capital in biotech. Um, for, for, for many years successfully as well. So, so no, we, we are very comfortable and the board is very comfortable um, with the sustainability of the payout strategy that we have. As we've been discussing, you pay dividends from capital, but when you're selecting shares for the investment trust, do you give any consideration to a potential investment's income profile? Absolutely not at all. Mm. Our objective is twofold. So, so firstly, it's to pick bottom up the companies that we believe are best placed to deliver growth in, in terms of capital appreciation for, for our investors, allied to this top-down view of where we think the important areas are for, for, for change in healthcare. And they're the only things that we take into consideration when selecting companies. It is a concentrated portfolio, so we've averaged uh, 29 holdings in the portfolio. We think that 29 to 30 is sort of the sweet spot for us in terms of, of, of the portfolio we want to manage, but we're capped at 35. So, so there is... There is um, the, yeah, we can only have a certain number of companies in there. So dividends aren't aren't a consideration. The organic yield on the portfolio has averaged somewhere around 0.6% uh, since inception. So it's something we monitor, but it's not something that drives um, our, our investment decisions. Okay, so what attributes do you look for when you sort of do your analysis on um, the potential additions? Sure. So, so, so we've identified... 21 key themes within healthcare and the continuum of care that we see as areas where existing technologies can deliver a combination of an improvement in the quality of care uh, and a, a lowering in the cost of care to the medical system. And there is in many ways a, a trifecta. You know, if you improve patient outcomes whilst allowing doctors to make better decisions and at the same time you save money, that is the trifecta that will ensure your services, whatever it might be, be it software, be it a drug, be it a medical product, it will be taken up very rapidly by the system because the, the, the challenges here are that, that you know doctors in many ways are, are drowning in information and they need life to be made more simple and the administrative burden to, to, to be alleviated so they can focus more on, 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 on helping their patients. And uh, the medical system needs to make sure that people get the most cost-effective treatments because we have to recognise we live in a world of, of finite resources. And unfortunately, this political trope that comes out about, you know, for the system, if only it had more money, everything would be all right. 
That isn't true. We already have a shortage of doctors in the UK. It's uh, around 3,000 today. It's projected to be 7,000 in 10 years. It's going to get bigger and bigger. We're, we're currently importing nurses from places like the Philippines in a beggar thy neighbour kind of way. These things are not sustainable policies. So fundamentally, the system has to change. And, and we, we've identified those, those key areas of change. And that's what really drives how we think about investing. Okay, so what subsectors of healthcare does this lead you to? Yes, a very, very different suite to, to, to traditional healthcare. So any, any benchmark will, of course, reflect historical success because they're all weighted by market cap. So if you look at the, the, the most commonly used healthcare benchmark, it's the MSCI World Healthcare, and roughly uh, mid-40s percent of that is large cap pharmaceutical companies and conglomerates, you know, your Johnson & Johnsons and your Pfizer's and so on. Now, the disruptive innovations that interest us tend to belong to, to, to a different suite of companies, as you say. So if you look at uh, our portfolio, it's very much focused on things like diagnostics, um, healthcare IT, healthcare technology, biotechnology. It's very much away from the traditional uh, areas of... Um, Mainstream healthcare success. funds. Yes, yeah. and, and, and if you follow any kind of an ETF strategy or you follow a typical kind of benchmark-hugging product, you know, with a low active share you're not going to get exposure to those things. And the, the, the other uh, related issue for, for a UK investor, I think, is d- despite our uh, leading position in, in life science innovation in terms of the, you know, the academic community, universities and so on, and research done in this, this country, we do not have an ecosystem that supports the um, nurturing of companies at the cutting edge of healthcare. I think that's a real shame. You know, I'm, I'm a scientist by training and I, I wish it wasn't the case. But you know, if you want a, an interesting example, look at GW Pharma. That's a, the epilepsy drug company. We're using cannabinoids. That is a UK company with UK labs, UK manufacturing. And it's listed in the US because it couldn't get the backing that, that it needed from investors for the later stage of the company's development from the UK. And I, I, I think that's a real shame. So if you are a UK-focused investor you're not going to be able to access direct investments that give you exposure to these really interesting areas of healthcare. The US is very different. They have a much more open um, attitude toward uh, risky venture capital and and the long cycle investing that's necessary in this area um, to to, to bring products to fruition. Okay, so what would be examples of holdings in um, some of these areas? Perhaps in particular, I don't know, the ones that you don't normally find in your average healthcare fund? Sure. So, so let, let me give you um, an example. So, so if, if people say to me, what do you think is the single most important um, uh, trend in, in, in healthcare over the next sort of 10 to 20 years? I would say it's, it's something called electronic triage and case management. This is something the NHS is actually developing itself. If you read the NHS 10-year plan that came out earlier in the year, uh, the digitization of, of, of people's entry into healthcare system is a big part of this. So... If you look at the data here in the UK, every time someone goes to GP, it costs the NHS £150. Uh, many people don't actually turn up for appointments, so that's that's wasted money. Many of these appointments are not medically necessary. So the, the NHS estimates roughly one in four. So you, you start thinking about the size of the population, all the GP appointments, and therefore the amount that is medically unnecessary. And the simple reality is, is not for the patient necessarily to make these decisions, but someone has to tell them and direct them to 
the appropriate level of service. And the other challenge we have, of course, is because people can't get access to their GPs because uh, the things are constrained, they vote with their feet and they do something perfectly logical, which is they go to minor injuries or they go to the A&E, which is obviously, never mind £150, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of pounds in, in, in cost. And then often they don't go to... Uh, to, to follow up. So in my local hospital, for example, there's a chart on the wall that shows you the number of people that vanish between entering A&E and then the x-ray department. So you've gone to hospital because you don't feel well. You've been told you need an x-ray. You've been given a piece of paper. You have to walk like 100 metres around the corner and people just vanish. And, you know, those things are a big problem because these people are clearly unwell and they need some kind of intervention and if we don't have the right diagnostics the x-ray or whatever we can't help so so the idea of electronic triage and case management is very very simple your first interaction with the healthcare system is a digital one if you do not need to see a doctor then it diverts you away to an appropriate practitioner so you know administrative things like prescription renewals or something like that can be done that way if you do need to see a doctor it can make sure that if, if the doctor cannot make a decision at that point of time uh, you are automatically booked in for um, yeah, relevant diagnostics, like an X-ray or an MRI or a blood test or whatever it can be. And then the footprint that you have follows you through the system. So you can make sure you go to the relevant bits you're supposed to go to and um, you, you you get the help you need. And then if you don't, we can... Is this company listed in the US? Well, there are lots of companies doing this. One of our biggest holdings is a company called Teladoc. Uh, and uh, that is the arguably mm. the global leader in, in in all of this field. Now, if you look at this marketplace today, roughly one percent of people's uh, of, of the population's entry into the healthcare system is is electronic mm. uh, inception and then m- managed all the way through. If you talk to the NHS or a big insurance company in the US or other countries or whatever, and you say, "What does this market look like ten, twenty years time?" they'll tell you roughly two-thirds of people should enter the system electronically mm. and be followed um, that way. And, and this is a US share, is this it? This is a US share. Yeah. Teladoc is, okay. is a US company. There are companies doing this in, mm. in, 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 in the UK. Do you own well. them? Well, we can't because they're private, so I have right. only invest okay. in, in... I mean, that, so that actually leads me to another question. Do you ever invest in any securities other than listed equities? No, we are purely a listed. Mm. And we have, um, in our investment criteria, which you can find on our website, we have liquidity criteria. So we have a, a discount control mechanism called a redemption option, which means basically once a year you can elect to redeem your shares and receive cash. Now, obviously, in order to have a mechanism like that, it behoves you to have a very liquid portfolio. So everything in our in our fund is 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 listed, and uh, it's very very liquid. Uh, we, we could liquidate the portfolio in a mm-hmm. matter of days. From, Not that you necessarily to. need to being no, a, exactly, a closed-end exactly. fund. But, but just as an example yeah, of the level of liquidity to, that we have. So it's very different. It's quite topical. So. Yes, yes. We, we, yes. We, would, we would not suffer mm. any of the issues no. that some other people might have experienced yeah. recently. Let's okay. Now, we've been talking quite a bit about US and opportunities the US and um, looking at your latest fact sheet, um, I see that certainly at the end of last month, about 90% of your assets were listed in the US, mm-hmm. which some people think is on high value Valuations. Um, I mean, how important is valuations when you selecting holdings for this fund? Um, and are you managing to avoid overvalued shares um, when you picking your US holdings? Sure. So, so we, we have a number of criteria that we that, that we, we we focus on when we're picking shares, and clearly valuation is is one of them. I think when you look at healthcare, you, you have to look at each subsector, sub each different bit of healthcare differently. So. If you look at healthcare, you have distribution companies and they, you know, the the, uh, the the drug wholesalers. They're two percent growth businesses with two percent profit margins. They should trade 
on low multiples because that reflects the nature of the business, highly capital intensive. And then you have some of these healthcare IT companies, you know, very, very fast growth. Teladoc is a, you know, 70% annual growing company, for example. Um, very low levels of tangible assets. Um, the very, very different valuation metrics need to be applied. So, yes, valuation is very important, but we, we benchmark these companies against relevant peers. We don't have a kind of overarching, you know, this is the right valuation for a healthcare company because healthcare is a very broad church. Coming back to your, your point about the US, I think if you look at healthcare in aggregate, which, as I say, is a little bit dangerous because it's, there's so many different companies in there, but if you do that, on relative valuation, what you will see is that the US is actually trades at a lower premium to the broader market than, than, than the rest of the world. I think that reflects two things. One is there are more lowly rated businesses. So they have a listed hospital sector, which is much smaller in the rest of the world. Distribution companies, things are listed again, um, low margin stuff. So that drags the multiple down. But I think the other thing, if you look in Europe or, or the UK, there is a scarcity premium for quality healthcare assets because there simply aren't many of them. Um, and I, I think that, that, that plays into valuation. So, so the reasons we have such a US-centric portfolio, I would say, are, are threefold. Firstly, uh, there is the reality that because the US is a for-profit system and, and, and a, a private system, it will change first. It will be the, the crucible of the very changes that we're talking about. And indeed, they're already evident in the US ahead of where they're evident everywhere else. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, the US has a much more supported nurturing venture capital system. You know, if I was going to start a healthcare company, I may well base it here because, as I say, we have great academic institutions that I can I can um, rely upon, but I definitely would list it in the US um, because I would get better access to, to capital markets and appropriate valuations and, and things like that. And then thirdly, the US is the most important market for healthcare, single regulator for drugs and devices. So, so, so uh, again, things prices are slightly higher. Things tend to happen there. So for those reasons, we have a US bias to the portfolio. I can't see that changing for the foreseeable future what is gradually creeping up is our uh, exposure to asia and uh, frontier markets and that again reflects demographic trends and, and and things like that one of the challenges you know china's clearly a very exciting market one of the challenges there historically has been that you can't get access to pure play companies you know their listing rules meant you you, you had to be profitable so, so so startups and things didn't necessarily come through in the way that we would like, but those rules are changing, uh, have changed, and, and, and there's some interesting stuff uh, coming through now. And then similarly, if we look toward you know, the, the Middle East and, and some of the more developed uh, countries in, in, in the African continent, they're moving toward much more integrated healthcare systems, and that is also creating opportunities. Now, you commented at the end of May that the healthcare sector had been volatile for a few months. Is this still the case? And do you expect it to be for the foreseeable future? I think so. I, I think, I think we, we are being assailed by all sorts of macro headwinds around um, shifting uh, politics in, 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 in much of the world, you know, away from the centre, more, more toward the edges. And that in itself creates volatility. We have all manner of currency-related volatilities around trade the, the u.s remains the most important um market trade-wise and china is the second and they're obviously in the midst of a trade spat which is unhelpful for all investors i would say and what uh, one, one can only hope for a a, a swift and uh, effective resolution to, to all of that and then in addition we we have an election going on in the u.s now as i said several times the u.s is the most important market for healthcare and healthcare is 
the, uh, the the political football. You know, the, the the U.S. population is very divided right now. Two things: talk to the whole U.S. population and bring everyone together, and that's they all hate insurance companies and they all hate drug companies. So, if you talk, as you would have seen in the Democratic primaries over the last two days, if you talk about healthcare, people listen, and 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 so. There is a lot of rhetoric, as with all politicians, unfortunately, what they can deliver and what they promise are rarely fully aligned. And um, very little of, I think, what's being said can be delivered or, or, or we'll see the light of day. Um, but, but, but the fear that it might obviously um, weigh, weighs on sentiment and uh, creates volatility. So I would say until we get to uh, you know, November 2020 and we know who's in the White House and more importantly, who's got control of, of the Senate, um, then, then, then I think that volatility will continue. Okay, and, and what would say the other main risks to the areas that you invest in at the moment? I, I think I think the the, the the biggest challenge for for for, for healthcare in many ways is um, you, you know, particularly if we think about it in in the UK context. I think the biggest challenge is 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 political interference. So I touched on the US and, 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 you know, healthcare is a political football. It's even more true, I think, here, here in the UK. You know, the, the reality is everybody has to accept we cannot carry on as we are. We cannot afford the healthcare system that, that, that we have. And whatever anyone says, it isn't working for the majority of people. You can see that in all the statistics about people's perceptions of it, waiting, you know, of access to GPs etc etc so we all need to have an adult and grown-up conversation about that and we're very lucky in the uk in 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 the sense of the current government which is i think not covered itself in glory in the competence uh, stakes did do something useful when when it it, it invited the nhs to do the 10-year plan and say you know what resources do you need where would you like to spend money what benefits do we society get from your proposals and if you read that document it talks about a profoundly different NHS in 10 years' time to the one, one we have today. That's great, and it's important that the, the NHS is freed from political interference to follow the course it deems to be the right one, rather than healthcare policy be whatever some minister read that morning on the front page of whatever paper it is they read and saying the new priority of the NHS is X for the next six months. You can't run any organisation like that. And one of the things that concerns me a little bit um, is... Here, here in the UK and in the US, is that people keep harking back to keeping things as they were or, 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 or maintaining the status quo when we can all see, if you look at the numbers, the system has to change. You know, there's, a, there's nothing against the NHS. It's full of very dedicated, hardworking people, but they can't cope with the workload that they have and we need to help them and give them systems to enable them to be more effective. And that means change and it means introducing all sorts of new things. And I, I think politicians need to tell the truth, admit that the system will be very different in the future. OK. Now, BB Healthcare Trust only launched in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what other experience do you and your colleagues have of running other funds? And what was your experience of investing in healthcare and biotech sure. uh, before the launch of a trust? So I, I've been around the, the healthcare industry in, in, in finance since the, 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 the mid-1990s. I was a scientist by training before then. So I've worked in healthcare corporate finance. I've worked in uh, on, on the sales side as, as a healthcare equity analyst for many years. And I've also done uh, advisory work for, for other uh, asset management companies around uh, healthcare strategies and healthcare products and things like that. I run the fund with a colleague, Brett Dark. He um, also, uh, he's a, he, he has a medical background. 
he worked in healthcare corporate finance and has spent many years on the buy side, both in the long only world and also in the in, in the long short world as a as a healthcare analyst. So within the team, we have many many decades of experience within Bellevue as a whole. So Bellevue is is very much a a healthcare shop, as it were. So roughly two thirds of our assets are in healthcare related strategies, and there are you know more than a dozen PMs uh, with similar levels of experience within the PMs being portfolio managers. managers yeah. um, and obviously that 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 gives us a wealth of experience and contacts that we can draw upon. Uh, when it comes to considering the outlook for the industry. Okay, thank you, Paul. A really interesting insight into the healthcare sector and how you run BB Healthcare Trust. When putting together a personal investment portfolio, it's important to diversify it. And for many investors, this means adding some investments that are lower risk or have a different return profile to equities. So, Annie, what would be an example of such an asset? So one good example is fixed interest securities or bonds, and they're a good addition to the portfolio because you can get a regular income in the form of regular fixed in, fixed rate of interest payments over the lifetime of the bond. Um, and if you hold it to maturity, then the issuer should return the face value of the bond to you. Okay. And how can investors get exposure to bonds? Um, so they can get exposure to government bonds, corporate bonds, and higher risk, high yield bonds through strategic bond funds. And what would be an example of uh, such a fund? A good example is the Bailey Gifford Strategic Bond Fund. It aims for monthly income and whenever it's possible, capital growth. It's managed by Torkel Stewart and Leslie Dunn, and it's currently invested mostly in corporate bonds. So what kind of returns has it made? It's had really good returns because it's a long-term investment. It's important to look at a 10-year uh, return gap, for example. And over 10 years, the funds returned 152.52%, beating the IA sterling strategic bond sector average of 48.41%. I mean, this all sounds good, but are there any drawbacks to this fund? Yes. Or funds like it even? I mean... Um, yeah, so investors face credit risk with this fund in particular. It's invested in some of, as I said, the higher risk, high yield bonds. So there is a likelihood that some of these companies could default, which means that investors might get a reduction in their monthly income. But also investors face the risk of interest rates going up, which means that the face value of their bond could reduce. So at maturity, they might get less than they anticipated. Thank you, Zayani. And you can read her full report on Bailey Gifford's strategic bond fund in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle of a website. That brings us to the end of today's show. But also see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on paying dividends from capital, bond funds and healthcare stocks. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.